shadows are falling And I've been here all day It's too hard to sleep And time is running away It feels like my soul Is turned into steel I've still got the scars that the sun didn't heal. There's not even room enough to be anywhere. It's not dark yet, but it's getting there. Welcome to black cast very excited that joining me now is musician john wade he has a wonderful new song called it's not dark yet which is from his latest album wooden heart acoustic anthology volume three john thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today i really oh, appreciate it's, it it's, thank you thanks for having me on the show now uh a lot of people feel that uh these times that we're living in right now i think uh the go-to is everybody would say that these aren't just dark times, but actually particularly dark times. Some people go so far and say the darkest times. So I kind of appreciated the sentiment of this song that you have, this new song, that yes, things, uh, it, it's it's getting there. The way you put it is it's not dark yet. It, oh, it's, well. It's getting it's, there. But, uh, you know, talk a little bit about making that distinction in the song. Well, it, it's a Bob Dylan song. And I think it's about time. It's like an sure. existential blues, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think it might fit the times, but it's. I think it's about getting older. And I think it's about uh, time. But uh, an experience in what you've been through in life, you know? But it's. Uh, it can mean a great song like that. It can mean a yeah. lot of different things to different people. All the best songs in the world, Missing You. Um, yeah. Well, that, that it's one of the best songs in the world. I, I but, mean, uh, I, look, I think that's something you and I can both agree on. Well, you know, so, I mean, you, know. I, you can't give yourself a compliment, but I'm. Uh, it's <laughs> but like, that's uh, why I'm here to say that it's one of the best songs ever. I love it. You check us in the mail. <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, missing you means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and yeah. uh, and it rings that bell. You know, a lot of different generations, and and uh, it just means a lot to different people because it means. It has different meanings to different people. So uh, Not Dark Yet is, you know, Bob Dylan, I think, looking towards, uh, you know, the end of his time. I think it's, yeah. uh, it's a very, like I said, existential blues. Yeah. And then I think that uh, you listen to it in 2021, uh, you know, if uh, if you had said, oh, that's a Bob Dylan song. He wrote it last week. That would be like, yeah, that seems about right. You know, it definitely has a very contemporary feeling. But I think whenever you would hear it, you would feel like, oh, clearly it's speaking to <clears throat> what's going on right now. And uh, I, I think uh, sort of the open ended interpretation of songs is obviously yeah. very important. Yeah. You know, er, earlier this year, I uh, I spoke with Don McLean, who obviously has American Pie. And he's yeah. like, I don't really like to talk about what it's about, because once you start to do that, it's like, oh, yeah, but that's not what it's about to me as the listener. And he he didn't want to get in the way of that. You know, it's like well, it doesn't matter what I was thinking. What does yeah. it mean to you, the, the listener? Well, most songs, most great songs uh, trigger a kind of cinematic uh, chain in people yeah. and they use their own experiences and they recognize 
the experiences through the songs. So it's, uh, like I said, again, um, the great songs speak to people and they can use their own life and images from the memory yeah. to be, you know, to wake up in the song. So, you know, that's, that's just good songwriting. Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, you know, sort of looking at it at the moment, I mean, obviously, you know, the, it, you didn't uh, accidentally record a song like this in, in this time, you know, so in terms of the literal interpretation of the lyrics, uh, what are some things that you see that make you think, you know what, it's not maybe as dark as uh, people would think, you know, oh, I, I think that there's, there's a lot to be, it's sure it's dark, but that, I think you can see it, you know, even during the you know the the most awful part of the pandemic there were still things you could look at you know in terms of healthcare workers and people you know working together and you know trying to get through things together so you know i mean i think even in truly dark times you can still see things that make you realize it's like you know we're not there yet well you know i think i said i did this interview yesterday and i and i finished the interview by saying that even though things are polarized and the right is extreme right and the left is extreme left, it's the sure. middle that means moving forward. You can't be so hard. You can't pan hard right and left without yeah. it being a problem because you're not representing all the people. Uh, Bruce Springsteen had a really wonderful song uh, for the Jeep commercial he did about meeting in the middle. And uh, I think that's the way out of where we are now. I think to give everyone a voice and compromise. I mean, it's a gigantic country. Yeah. And a lot of people feel differently about things that would have been black and white two years ago. Things have really come into focus and there's a lot of anger and stuff. So yeah. I believe, uh, you know, just conversation, decency, listening to people, compassion, uh, you know, charity. I mean, it's, it's maybe it's not the way of the world, but I mean, this is a wonderful country, and yeah. if it can't happen here, it's not going to happen anywhere. No, and I think the key to what you said is conversation, which uh, you know, it seems that uh, so many people don't want to practice the the seemingly lost art of conversation. Yeah, it, that you know, could it's be the internet. That could be the internet. Yeah. People just spouting off without having to be responsible for what they say. I mean, you can say anything you want on the internet and a lot of people get extremely uh, nasty. You know, yeah. I, mean, I mean, there's no politeness really, but. <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's what conversation is. It's like looking somebody in the eyes and being accountable for what you say. Yeah. I mean, and being accountable uh, seems to have been diminished because of the internet. You can just say whatever comes into your head and, yeah. um, not necessarily be the best person you know <laughs> yeah if the terms of service for facebook and twitter included that you can post whatever you want but then after you send it you have to go to that person's door knock on the door let them open it and then you have to say exactly the same thing you just posted yeah. and then i think a lot of people will be like eh, you know what <laughs> i don't really feel that strongly about it yeah and you know i think just talking is uh is so hard instead of like I hate the way you voted. I hate the way you feel about this issue. It's never, well, not never, but for so many people, it's not, well, why did you vote the other way? Well, why do you feel like this? What are you worried about, about, you know, I mean, just, you know, the idea of, you know, I mean, you know, before this, like vaccines were usually something that people agreed upon and people have a lot of different reasons to agree upon. 
And, you know, it's, uh, well, well, why do you feel that way? You know, what are you worried about? And uh, in, instead, you don't get to ask that. You don't get to explain why you voted one way or the other. So, uh, yeah, I think that uh, it, it, I can see the darkness all around, but the idea that people will have conversations and, you know, when people can still, you know, people haven't cut out of their lives family members who don't agree with them. You know, I think that uh, yeah, th that's encouraging when you hear about, you know, that yeah. uh, it's it's always sad. It's like, oh yeah, I don't I don't talk to these people uh, anymore. Yeah, uh, but I mean, I mean, I mean, the right. The, I mean, who'd have thought that 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 this version of the Republican Party would be so right? I mean, right in as like hard right politics, yeah. you know, and um, without taking care of the next generation with education and healthcare, what can you expect to, to arrive in 10 years? You have yeah. to build more schools, get healthcare for everyone. And um, without funding that relentlessly, there's always going to be racism. There's always going to be the projects. There's always going to be homeless people. I mean, there are no programs to get the homeless off the street, really, you know, no, uh, here in Santa Monica, the streets are, are full of homeless people and they're in a really bad way. But I mean, yeah. whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, what's going on? I mean, you can not, I just, the other day, I I was having a glass of uh, wine at, on the sidewalk in a cafe and a Ferrari went by, uh, you know, gunning its engine, you know, yeah, the young kid in it, look at me, right? And yeah. as I watched it go by, I look, my eyes hit on a homeless person and it couldn't have been more foreign. You know, it was like two separate worlds in the land yeah. of the free. I mean, what does that say about us? You know, what, yeah. what is, where are we going with that? I mean, you can't have these people that they're, they're helpless. A lot of these people, they're schizophrenic. They're off the meds that they, they, they have nowhere. And the shelters are dangerous. Everybody's carrying a knife. You know, there's people that are really out there, just cast out on the streets. So, I mean, where does that begin and end? Because that should be the most American thing in the world is to help those people. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, you, you always have to wonder, you know, I mean, a few years ago, that wasn't the case. I mean, I, I live in the Valley, but, you know, I drive around North Hollywood and, you know, yeah. there's, there's whole underpasses that it's just yeah, like, you can't, you can't it. walk that way anymore. You know? Yeah, but I mean, you, uh, go, you go to the airport from, from Santa Monica, where I am. Yeah, sure. And it's, and it's a very sort of posh place to live. It's a very nice place to live. Yeah. But you get on the 10 freeway, to go down the four or five to the airport. And the moment you get on the 10, there's, there's like shelters built into the side of the freeway, freeway of, of cardboard and plastic. And there's people living and dying. You know, I mean, I, you know, if you've got some sort of positive thing to say about that, I mean, say it because I'm, yeah, I, no, I, I, and, I can say what I've just said twice. No, yeah, and I, I think that this is where, you know, our, I, I'm using air quotes, our, our leaders fail us, our elected officials, because- Yes, but the left talk, are failing us and the right are failing us. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, is you talk to Republicans and you say, you know, oh, I feel so bad for the homeless. Republicans in my life aren't going to say, oh, I don't care about the homeless. No, they'll say the same thing. You know, the people know how bad this is, but getting those in charge to actually do something- 
And, you know, you have to wonder what changed in the last few years, you know, just on a local level. You know, it doesn't matter who the president is as to whether or not there's homeless in Santa Monica, you know, more yeah. than there were. And, uh, I, you know, you, you would think that the the level of, uh, you know, the level of, of how much the the elected officials say they care for us and for the people, uh, it's great, but show how you care for everybody, you know, not not just people who can, you know, attend your fundraisers or maybe don't vote. Well, yeah. You know? yeah. But I, mean, I think it all starts, you know, with with us all. How we maneuver through that world. I mean, you know, you can give somebody five, ten dollars on the street. Yeah. And they're gonna either eat or go and buy drugs or whatever they're going to do. I mean, yeah. there's such a lot. This is such a great deal needs doing to salvage these people. These kids, these people were once somebody's kid. You know, they were loved or I hope they were, you know, but having yeah. a mental breakdown and falling into the, the, you know, the side of the road and being left there, that's kind of like, I don't get that. I just don't get it. No, no, I don't. I don't either. And uh, it's, it's getting uh, worse, you know, it's getting worse. A lot of people have lost their jobs with the pandemic. Yeah. And uh, it, they used to say people are only two or three paychecks away from being on the street. But maybe that's going to get worse as we go. Yeah. Forward. I mean, when you think about the number of people who in the last year and a half, the the two or three consecutive paychecks might not have been as easy to come by, you know, in fact, right. in many cases, they probably weren't, you know, and uh, I think that uh, that's uh, it's very it's very troubling that not, you know, that, uh, you know, they'll have debates they'll have uh you know we had a recall election here in california and uh the fact that it was like well let's kind of mostly talk about the homeless we should talk about the pandemic but the fact that the homeless isn't talked about more and the, on a national level you know just we're talking about it locally it's why why is it not at the forefront you know there's plenty of other problems as well but you don't hear enough talk about it and i i you know it's not like this is something that we're just dealing with here you know i mean i have a a, a lot of friends who live throughout the country obviously big cities like new york it's periodically yeah. been a problem and i know it's a it's a big problem right now and i wish that uh, you and i had good ideas right now in this moment that we could say like well here's what everybody needs to do and uh, let's just get that message out to, you know, some of our elected officials, but, uh, uh, you know, to, to care and then do something about it. It's not enough to just be like, oh, I feel bad when I see it. You know, we want them to uh, do yeah. more. Um, obviously, we could uh, focus on the, the ills of the world uh, for the rest of our time together. But I did want to talk about happier things, which is you have this new song. It's the part of it's part of a volume three of the Wooden Heart Acoustic Anthology. Uh, yeah. Talk about sort of these series of albums, but specifically this volume three, which is the latest. Well, um, about four years ago, I released an EP that was all acoustic, just four songs. You know, mm -hmm. it's something I really wanted to do for years and years. You know, but and my first love is the acoustic guitar. You know, uh, that's the first music I heard a big uh, nas national resonator guitar. My cousin Michael was playing it and <clears throat> played me Hank Williams, excuse me, and uh, Jimmy Rogers and all these great folk artists in Britain. So in the early 90s, everybody was making unplugged records. I mean, everybody from Bob Dylan to Golden Earring, you know? So I, I felt like I'd be jumping on the bandwagon sort of doing that then, you know? Um, and 
eventually, you know, I suppose I, I had a fairly successful run with a couple of my last releases, Rough and Tumble and um, a live album I put out. But um, it, there was just like a, it just felt right to do it in that time. There's, I, I look back at my catalog, you know, it's all the baby stuff when I was a singer with the babies and then all the solo stuff, Missing You and all that. And then Bad English and then another album called Temple Bar, which was really singer-songwriter forward. That was kind of led me to this. It's all an organic progression, you know? And um, as time went by, like three years ago, I, I cut volume two, which had about 13 tracks on it. it was, I put Missing You on there and Isn't It Time and In God's Shadow and Masterpiece of Loneliness, some of the darker songs, you know? And it really, it really rang the bell, I thought. And with the pandemic, you know, I was kind of like, I was in the studio trying to cut an electric album and I just, it just didn't pan out. It didn't sound right. It didn't feel right. And I spent like two weeks there, <clears throat> dropped a lot of money. And I, I was just, you know, it's my favorite studio, you know, the doghouse in Woodland Hills. And I, I thought, well, you know, don't leave empty handed, cut some acoustic stuff, you know? And I did. And it just, came out of nowhere. I mean, there was like, they were talking about Not Dark Yet, the Dylan song. It's a very, that's a heavy song to take on. You better, you know, be clear when you perform that song. You can't just like dip down and look like you're clever doing the Dylan song. That's some, that's an intense piece of music. And I got that fairly early on in the first two days. And that just spurred the whole thing forward. And I, I actually, um, I've done this artwork here. This, this is the cover of the album. Oh um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's this cartoon. It's like Dylan's self-portrait, really. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but I got more talent. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, sorry, Bob. And, um, yeah, and, hey. and that spurred me to. I thought, well, you know, people have probably not seen. The, the first two releases, because the, the hardcore fans, really, you know, we do sure. unplug dates, you know, but um, yeah. <clears throat> I thought, okay, I'll put the whole lot out, three CDs at once, the whole thing, and um, mm -hmm. it doesn't cost the earth, you know, it's it's like $25 for three CDs, or it's, you can, you can get it at uh, Target, most Target stores are carrying it. And obviously there's Spotify and, and Apple Music, you know. Yeah, of course. Um, uh, it's a nice thing to have. It feels nice in your hands because it's like three CDs and it's relentless, you know. it's. Um, I'm pretty proud of it. I mean, it's. Uh, we're going out with Pat Benatar and Neil Giraldo playing electric dates and some of those dates will be acoustic. So when it's acoustic, it's the bass guitar and two guys on stage playing the acoustic uh, it's the bass and the two acoustic guitars. Right. So <clears throat> it changes day to day, you know, keeps it very fresh. We can do an unplugged evening with kind of thing. And it's very much about the audience interacting. They, they ask questions, shout stuff. You know, you can start a conversation with, with somebody in the front row at the back. You know, it's, it's a very intimate experience. And then on other dates, we come out swinging for the, you know, 
for the fences you know we, <laughs> right. we play all the hits like you know back on my feet again missing you midnight rendezvous when i see you smile and then i always throw in bluebird cafe which is uh, an acoustic song i wrote in nashville which seems to be like you know a, fa a crowd favorite but you know i try to live in both worlds as an yeah. artist i think doing one thing over and over and over again you know i mean i just don't get that i like to take a, a left turn here and there and throw a curve at the audience you know yeah that's why i think it can be so interesting when you know an artist does something that is acoustic or you know so many you know there's been it's kind of the last 15 20 years you're seeing the trend where you know even a band like metallica will do a performance with an orchestra and yeah. you know and sometimes it works really well and even when it doesn't you're like i i like that they tried it you know what i yeah. mean it's, uh, yeah no i it, think that's that's true i mean james netfield yeah. uh I saw him recently. We did an Eddie Money tribute um, in LA. It was Sammy Hagar, there was me and James. Yeah. And uh, we each did a song of Eddie's. And uh, it was like a, a goodbye. It was like a wake. And James is, uh, he's got a lot going on. You know, he's a smart guy, you know. And, oh, yeah. And, you know, Sammy's like a razor. You know, he's really smart. You know, the, yeah. it was great to see that. You know, but the, Sam, Sam, Sammy's like that uh, Brad Pitt movie, uh, Benjamin Button. Every time you see him, he looks just a little bit younger than the last <laughs> time we saw him. I think like this week, this weekend actually, in uh, on Catalina, he's having his birthday party. I think he's turning seventy three. I oh, I would yeah. have to check his ID. I don't think he's really seventy three. That doesn't. Oh, he's uh, he's got some some older children and stuff. But he's oh, he's yeah, a really great guy, man. He's a yeah. great guy. He's always got a good word. Uh, oh I've, yeah, I've kind of known him for years and years, and every time I see Sammy, he, he always lights up. He, he always gives you hope. He always looks you in the eyes when he talks to you, <laughs> and he's a hell of a singer, man. He can oh, yeah. really deliver. And you know, anybody that could keep up with Eddie Van Halen playing guitar, he's yeah. also <laughs> a pretty great guitar player. But you know, but like you oh, say, yeah. it's great to see people doing something unusual and going out and you know playing. Absolutely. And, you know, you're talking about uh, the live dates and uh, people can uh, find a, a whole list of those, I believe, at uh, John Waite. And uh, I've, obviously people know John Waite, but W-A-I-T-E, always important to spell. JohnWaiteWorldwide.com. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the shows with uh, Neil and, and Pat Benatar. And uh, I think that uh, Pat Benatar is one of those things where music fans, other musicians, they appreciate her. But then you always feel like, everybody appreciates her in the whole world except for the rock and roll hall of fame because every time that they have those lists you you look at it and you go like yeah but where's pat benatar you Is know like all these no she's not <laughs> and it's it, the fact that that uh you know of course you would assume that and what? you would assume that she would have been decades ago or as soon as she was eligible basically I, you know they have like rules about it and she's not in and it, you know some, sometimes she's not even on the list of potential nominees and it's just like how is it that the you know the the handful of of snooty you know music elites are the ones who decide you know i mean you had bands like kiss and rush that didn't get in until very late because they weren't you know their kind of music and pat is is so great but also so important and uh it, it's it's great that you're getting an opportunity to go out with her i'm glad that she's out she's still performing because uh i i, I would hate for people to not appreciate her you know well you know you, it's a it's a it's a partnership with neil i think yeah, and, and, and it's and it comes across like that on stage it's pat benetton and neil geraldo and, yeah. and they stop you know they stop in the middle of the show and, and talk to each other and it's a very intimate kind of it's like um 
it's like a musical about their their life together the whole thing you know it's it's intriguing watching neil play because he's very he's very uh unusual his style you know yeah you get the feeling that he was raised on eddie cochran and, and all these blues guys because he's he's very unorthodox you know his guitar playing is really a different way of looking at it and then you have patty who's like this mezzo soprano uh fantastic range you know she hits the notes yeah. every night it's, it's it's kind of a really great thing to sit through the whole show because it just gets more and more intense but yeah <laughs> the two of them should be in the uh absolutely oh, yeah but i guess it's who you know yeah well that's what it really comes down to you know yeah. and it's uh yeah. it, it's funny because you know of the it's a little bit of a you know inside baseball sort of thing but you know on the committee of of deciding is Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine and oh, Rage, Against the Machine, Rage Against the Machine still not in really? <laughs> the guy's own band. They've been eligible like two years. But oh, when you have somebody like that, that's how you get bands like Kiss and Rush and, you know, ones that had been ignored for far too long, you know. And so it's uh, it's great when you see some changes in an organization like that. And uh, hopefully that, uh, you know, you shake your head sometimes and uh, you know, uh, it's, it's like, you know, Def Leppard only went in a couple years ago, you know? So it's, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what goes on over there. Um, but what I did want to talk about is in terms of you going out and doing these shows, have you done much performing in recent months? Yes. Uh, when did you go back out and start performing again? Uh, you know, there was a full months. year there, where, a full year yeah. where people weren't really doing shows. When did you get back out there? And uh, what was it like that, first time back on stage in front of a crowd well uh it was a it was a private gig okay. uh in gilroy uh this uh, very wealthy guy hired the band to come and play on the grounds of his mansion <laughs> and uh Gil gilroy california of course known for the annual garlic festival and yeah if, you, if you're driving up north and you roll down your window you will smell yeah. gilroy california yeah uh, this guy had like a palatial pad and, and um, we went without rehearsing. We, we, we just know the songs, you know, we just sure, showed up and thought we're doing the dressing room, you know, and um, we came out and it was a little strange, you know, it's like a little strange trying to decide what to actually wear for the gig. And then you walk from the trailer to the stage and it's like, Oh, I remember this, you know, I'm going to, this is going to be okay. And then, you know, you, the band kick it off and there you are. And it's like, it, it's been 18 months, you know, and you really are faced with how does this go? Cause it's not like riding a bike, you know, although maybe it is, but it's, it's all instinct with me anyway. You know, I just step to the mic and that it just happens. But we, we had a great show, actually. Everybody played all the, it, there was no, you know, mistakes. It was it was kind of like, uh, wow, you know, we really had a great time up there. The crowd went nuts and it was, but I, I have to say when I left the stage, every single muscle in my body ached. I mean, oh. it was like, it was like trying to turn on uh, the ignition of a, a sports car or something after leaving it in the garage for like 18 months. It's gonna, wheeze and cough and choke and then it's going to find itself <laughs> and you can hear all the cylinders humming and all that and that's what it was like yeah and yeah. then uh the next day was also uh a private gig and that was in um dayton ohio same thing 
very wealthy people hired the band to play this private party and and that was exceptional we just kicked it it we really had a great gig and it was everybody was just having a great time and then you know with the neil and patty stuff we that was just like we'd really hit our stride then and uh, doing odd headline gigs in the middle of all that and the odd unplugged date and doing unplugged dates with patty and neil and then coming out with the full band and uh 10 days ago we were in tulsa um playing live open air you know i mean it's like headline and it's like we're back you know i yeah. think um we're back i mean i'm in the studio uh sunday i've been in the studio all week i'm making a new record as well so i mean as far as you can um it's it's almost normal but at the same time i just talked to neil this morning neil geraldo and he, he had the flu like two weeks ago and they had to cancel a couple of shows him and patty you know yeah. so if one thing doesn't get you it looks like the other one's gonna get you yeah. it's, it's not safe to go outside anymore <laughs> I, I know it's uh everybody's uh you know <clears throat> dealt with getting their uh their COVID shots but now it's a yeah I'm, i literally this morning got a text from the pharmacy that uh, gotta get your flu shot i'm like yeah oh, yeah, yeah i know you know yeah, so but, but, but neil said it was like really serious it was like oh, sure. a really bad version of flu so if you're oh, out there and you're listening don't forget to get that shot because yeah. wearing the mask isn't going to stop it either so no no I do the right thing Take the yeah shot. and uh you know i can imagine what it's like for the performers because the first like big actual like show that i went to was only in the beginning of uh, september i went and saw uh weezer green day and fallout boy at dodger stadium and there's wow. seats there but i was still like i'm like i don't usually stand this long you know i stood yeah. for an entire set and uh I, yeah my muscles aren't uh trained for going to concerts so i can only imagine the performers Yo, right? yeah yeah but you know that's why it's a two-way street you know yeah. if the audience is uh with you you know yeah. you can have a great gig but apparently you know aches and pains come with it you know <laughs> uh there's obviously so much about your career that i could uh t ask you about but uh the uh, uh, the bad English song when I see you smile is from the the sweet spot of when I really like exclusively listened to Top Forty Radio. I yeah. Just growing up, that was so. The number of I I will have to say that I've heard that song probably more than I've heard Stairway to Heaven. Just because, really? like, well, just because, like, in a day, I'd probably hear it five or six times for like months, you wow. know. And uh, you know, and uh, so it's it makes me think of a very specific time, yeah, and and place. But also, I mean. I sort of love the composition, you know, that obviously that that is, you know, you with uh, some of the guys from the babies and uh, obviously Neil Sean. And I, I you know, and it, it reminds me, the sounds obviously not the same, but it reminds me of, you know, damn Yankees being sort of the bunch of different moving parts all put together. And that's uh, around the same time period, about a year later. So how exactly does bad English come about? Were you working on stuff for a solo album and then it sort of morphed into that or was it yeah. like, Oh, we should work together again. How does it actually happen that you end up with bad English? Well, uh, my manager at the time, Trudy green, uh, I just signed with Trudy, uh, frontline management. It was the biggest management company in America. Really. Sure. We had Aerosmith and Don Henley and the Eagles and all. I mean, it's just like a huge thing. And yeah. the, Trudy was so great. You know, she believed in me. She saw that I had a better experience with my last record got me out of that deal and then walked me into epic which is like the biggest of the biggest you know really the gorilla in the room you know it's like the, the great <laughs> sure. staff 
really yeah. forward moving, great distribution. I mean, everybody was just on 10, the best in the business. And she walked me into a meeting with the A&R guy. And I've written some major songs in my life. I mean, from, from the babies forward through some of the solo hits. And um, the A&R guy looked at me and said that he, he, he was going to sort of like oversee the songwriting. And I thought like, well, this is bad news. You know, this isn't going to be, I want to be on this label so bad. Tommy yeah. Matola was running it, you know, it was like, and um, just wonderful people, Polly Anthony. Um, and we left the meeting and I just, we're walking down Madison Avenue, me and Trudy. And I said, like, I can't do that. You know, it's a nervous breakdown. <laughs> you know, I mean, somebody coming to the studio and said, I don't hear it, you know. And yeah, sure. it doesn't see you as an artist, you know. But then again, what does an A&R guy do if he doesn't find the songs and starts, you know, laying the law down? He hasn't got a job. So I understood it politically, but I wasn't interested. As an artist, I want to have absolute control, you know, and that's it. There's yeah. no compromise. If you compromise, it's going to sound like, you know, shit basically you know, <laughs> radio friendly shit so yeah. um i said to trudy you know i said you know i could do a band i could put a band together and we could outfox this situation because if you get like three other guys in the room there's too many to argue with you know and uh, <laughs> it it might have been inspired by david boyd boy doing tin machine oh sure yeah right you know i mean he had the sales brothers come in as a rhythm section and um, you know he sang that song jump and it was a hit and it, it was remarkable that boy thought i'll just do it. it could have been from that i just had the idea on the street that was my solution and i looked around for guitar players for about a month i even flew to europe and hung out in clubs and i couldn't find anybody at all i mean it was just all the really great players were busy you know or making solo records and I got back to America and I just said, this is, you know, said to Trudy, it's just not working. You know, it's just, there's nobody out there. And um, she said, what's Jonathan Cairn doing? And I said, well, you know, he's a keyboard player. That isn't really where I'm going. It's got to be a great guitar player. And I said, well, just check it out. You know, we've, we've kind of tried everything else. So I talked to John and, and went down and met him and thought, well, should we get together, write some songs, see what happens? And uh you know, it was a little strange, but it, we wrote a couple of things. And then out of the blue, Neil Sean shows up in the studio uh, to add guitar. And suddenly there's this three-way conversation going on that's sort of progressing into longer conversations. It's like, you know, hey, this isn't bad, is it? This is pretty good, you know. They would all go out for a glass of wine and, and get on, you know. It was like, well, this seems familiar. <laughs> and it was just like, yeah. and then it was like, who's going to play bass then if we did this? And I think it was uh, Jonathan that said, call Ricky. You know, Ricky had been in the babies, you know, as John had. And he, he came down and plugged in and we took the whole thing to L.A. And uh, stayed in apartments, started to write a record. And then Dean showed up. We tried every drummer we could think of. And then one night, uh, Neil came into the rehearsals and said, I just played with this guy, he's great, last night in the club. And the next day he brought Dean down. And Dean played like every form of jazz and uh, 
every esoteric obscure kind of time signature and was like doing drum solos. He was nervous, you know, and it didn't work. And we, and he sort of like, he was very young. He was about 22 then, you know, and uh, I couldn't sing to it because every time I started singing, he'd put like some, it was just like, you know, shut the fuck up, <laughs> just play, play the beat. And, and he went away and, you know, being a young kid so full of energy and so great, um, he thought he out. And I think Neil had a talk to him, like, you just got to, you know, let the singer sing and then do your thing, you know. So he came back a week later and killed it. And he's a lovable guy, you know, everybody wanted him in the band anyway, you know, so, <laughs> and he was just phenomenal. And that was it. You know, we were a band and went back to um, the A&R guy and uh, said, well, we've got this band, you know, and what, you know, what do you think of this? And he said, well, I'd like to hear some music, you know, you know, he's obviously hurt feelings, but we went in a, we got Richard Zito, the producer, and went into this lockup garage in, um, in the valley, I think, and, uh, or in Venice, I think it might have been. And we recorded demos <laughs> so he could hear them and say, yes. oh, okay, then, you know, and it worked. You know, we, some of the demos actually wound up being part of the master tracks, like Forget Me Not. You know, they were, they were part demo and part, you know, huge, expensive studio. But you couldn't stop a band like that. It was just too good. You know, it was just everything we did worked, you know. Yeah. No, definitely. And uh, it's, uh, I think that uh, it, it seems like you had a great mixture and, you know, sometimes that can work and sometimes it can't. You know, it's, it, there's a, you know, it's interesting when you think about Dean Castronova as the drummer, because obviously, you know, people know him a lot from Journey, but, you know, he's also, you know, played for Ozzy, Steve Vai and so many, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, there's just sort of like a nice mix. It's like not everybody can play for any one of those guys, you know, especially like, you know, to drum for Steve Vai, I can't imagine. I'm not, yeah, but I'm he's, not he's that good. I mean, yeah. he, oh, can, yeah, he, can, he can, like in something like Lay Down, he can just hit that beat and his four yeah. on the floor or whatever. And it's just like, Jesus Christ. You, know, <laughs> you suddenly dance on stage, you're moving because yeah. he's got that thing. But if you said like six, eight, so seven four back in four four, spin out that into six eight, put some uh, seven four in there again. And I'll see you at the end in four four. He he just go like radio, and do it. You know, I mean, he was that good. He is that good. He's a phenomenally gifted timepiece with a great imagination. Yeah. And the kid is saying, yeah. There's a comment in our uh, live chat. Uh, Jacob Danny says, "This is like having tea with you, just sort of having a conversation. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's great chatting with you. Uh, very casual, laid back. I'm going to ask you about two more things, and then I'll let you get back to your day and maybe some actual tea. Um, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I've, I've I've just got water, so I'm uh, I'm I'm far less refined." Um, but, uh, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, getting your solo career, obviously you'd had success with the babies, you know, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, the, you know, your first real solo success, I think was the song change helped by yeah. MTV, but also it that was a song written by Holly Knight, who I think yeah. a lot of people don't realize how many of their favorite songs Holly Knight wrote. You yeah. know what I mean? It's, uh, it's, it's not like, it's not like you know, Bernie Taupin, you know, she's not necessarily somebody that everybody knows who she is. So talk about, did, uh, did the song find its way to you? Did you yeah. know her? No, did I, you? Was, okay. yeah. I was working, I was living in a, a crash pad on 72nd street 
in uh, Manhattan. I'd moved to Manhattan, right opposite where John Lennon had been assassinated like six months before. So it was oh, wow. a very heavy, doomy time. Sure. And I moved there as, uh, in the middle of winter. So it was always raining and it was snowing and it was like really intense. And I'd met Ivan Kroll from Patti Smith's band and uh, from Iggy Pop. He was playing with Iggy Pop at the time. And me and Ivan started to write this New York record. It was, what else could you do? It was, I was the first time I was living in New York, you know, I'd been there yeah. playing the garden or whatever, doing all this stuff. But it was the first time I was actually doing laundry in New York, you know, and going right. out and uh, buying beans and tuna fish and, uh, you know, and yeah. coming home at dawn and stuff. Every night was, it was nocturnal existence. And me and Ivan had all this music that we'd written and Neil Giraldo, uh, stepped forward and said, I can produce this if you want. And I said, yeah, that could work. We have to do it at the power station and I want Bob Clearmountain to engineer it. We have to use the big room at the power station. And if you do that, then we have a deal. And um, as soon as that came about, like, you know, we could be there for November. You know, we could start in November. Um, I got a cassette in the mail you know, it was, I don't know who it was, a publisher or something, a cassette yeah. of change. And some of the lyrics didn't move me. I thought it was, you know, not me. But there was something about the chord changes, and it was very clever musically. You know, it, it was uh, it was clever. She's a smart woman, you know. She has a good worldview. And I, I rewrote some of it, so it sounded like John Way, and I sang it differently the the original version they'd done was almost like a weimar republic cabaret you know it was like um you uh, no shit i mean the singer that they had in the band that cut it was that's what it sounded like it's like uh you know cabaret but yeah. with the backbeat and i straightened that out i thought that wasn't gonna work for me and the band Obviously, every band plays songs differently, but I got them. I got it in the mail. Oh wow! They went to work on it, and so yeah. anybody that's worth their salt is going to do that anyway. Oh yeah! But I thought it would cover a lot of ground. It would take a gigantic amount of pressure off me to have a single. And me and Ivan had written so many songs. We were we were wondering what to to cut out of the set, you know. But uh, with a record company like Chrysalis, they're always looking at you like, "Where's the singles?" So I thought if I could really put my stamp on this thing, and I had Frankie LaRocca on drums, who was absolutely just the best. Uh, it was a great band. I mean, it was such a great band. We could have played anything and it would have worked, you know. But again, sort of heading off the record company and the A&R department, I, I wanted to solve that problem going in. And if we talked it, we could take it out. But it was right. important. We, I didn't move to New York. I mean, I was jamming with Chris Spedding at that point and uh, Buster Jones. We were going to start a band called Pretty Tough. But this is like people who lived in lofts. Downtown. Yeah. And there was a heavy drug scene and there was uh, after hours clubs that didn't even open till five in the morning. You know? <laughs> right. And I was living that life. It was like, you know, son of Dracula. I mean, I would wake up about six at night, uh, eat something and then go out to a to a bar, make some friends and then go out, like go and see people like 
you know, a Webster Hall, you know, like, TV, oh, yeah. you know, people were playing Webster Hall, like uh, Keith Richards and uh, Clapton. I mean, you could go to Webster Hall downtown and it was just full on New York it, and CBGB's was still open. But that whole record is every time I hear any of it talking about what we talked about before, I, I go right back to 72nd Street and, and oh, yeah, the mattress on the floor and, you know, <laughs> It was yeah. just a, fan, a fantastic two years. It, it formed a lot of my future in the music business, really. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, obviously, uh, again, this is sort of the 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 way that music affects us as the, the audience. You know, it makes us think of times and places, but, uh, you know, the performers yeah. as well is the same thing. I mean, I... I, I I feel like I'm half remembering, you know, that at some point in his life, uh, Billy Joel stopped performing just the way you are because it was about his first wife and he just didn't want to get in that headspace because, you know, so he just stopped singing it, you know, and it, it's, it, it's like, you think about that sometimes as a fan, you might be like, Oh, I like that song. But then you're like, yeah, but uh, you know, it's, it's going to distract him for the whole night and he won't yeah. be able to do no, it. No, you have so. to be careful what you play. Yeah. I mean, every yeah. time I, 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 I sing missing you, I have, the same images go through my mind. I could be uh, on a stage at a festival in front of like 20,000 people, or I could be doing the unplugged thing. Yeah. And it's on the record, the unplugged record. It's a nice version. But I, but I always think of um, Glenn Campbell, Wichita Online Man. Oh yeah. When I went, when I went in to sing the song, I was thinking about that immediately. I was married at the time. And I hadn't been home for like six months. I was making this record. I'd gone over to sign the contracts in LA from England and just hit the ground running, found a great guitar player, great band, sent for my old bass player. We went in the studio almost immediately and started making the record. So I hadn't been home for like six months, you know. Wow. And, um, and that was the last song to be written. And, you know, it, for me, it was Wichita Lineman. And there's a song by Free called Catch a Train. Catch a train to my place. Meet me when you get into town. I'm gonna meet you at the station. Oh yeah, you can tell me why you're feeling down. Paul Rogers, you know, it is absolutely Oh yeah. But those two songs, for some reason, one of them to me is a, is a mental picture of a, a train coming into a station. And the other, the Glen Campbell side of it, is looking down like a desert highway with telegraph poles. And then there was a, a touch of New York. I hadn't been back to New York for about 10 months and I really missed it. I, I sure. remembered that it was home actually. <laughs> I finally found a home and I hadn't been there. So it was, it was kind of a conflicted song, Missing You. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting you brought that up because, as I said, I had two more questions. The last one was going to be about Missing You. So you're talking about how it was the last one recorded for uh, the album. And, you know, a lot of times it seems like it can kind of go either way. Sometimes, you know, uh, performers will have a massive, you know, hit or a song that's a signature song for them and sometimes it'll be the oh yeah we knew when we did it and sometimes it'll be like oh yeah i didn't even want that song on the album but uh did you know that like yeah. when that came together as the last song you're like no this is something really special yeah well i, I we, they were actually mixing the record david thorner was mixing the record and gary myrick the guitar player was doing the odd overdub just when it sort of needed it 
and and I left them to it. And I was working with somebody in their home studio, and um, I just knew we hadn't got it. You know, the record was great, but we didn't have it. We didn't have that that missing piece. Yeah. You know? And um, he was looking for a song we'd been working on the previous night, and he had no code on the tape. Like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And so he hadn't put any code on it, numbered it. So he was running through the tape looking for our song. And he hit play to see where he was. And this eight note feel came up like bang, gun, 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 gun. And I said, What's that? And he said, Oh, no, it's just something. It's just, you know, it's not working. Don't worry about it. It's, and I said, No, 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 no. Give me a shot of that. Because we both knew the song we were working on the previous night really wasn't going to burn any houses down, you know. <laughs> and I was going to, I was always game to just jump in at anything. I'm good at that. Yeah. You play the two or three chords and I'll give you a song with a lyric and a title and a bridge and the whole thing. It's a spontaneous thing with me, songwriting. It's like letting a, a dog out of a kennel. You know, it just runs. It's a beautiful thing. But anyway, he put the tape on and I went in his spare room. Uh, where he had the mic set up and he played it through once and I sang this melody and I thought, shit, that's pretty good. And I said, what do you think of that? And he said, what? <laughs> <laughs> he hadn't recorded it. He was probably smoking a cigarette or something. He was like, you know, yeah, I'm drunk. And just... I said, listen, man, you know, just hit the record button for Christ's sake. There's something going on here. And, um, and he did it again, and I, I started off with Every Time I Think of You, because it was a baby song, right? Right. Every time right. I think of you, it always turns out good. And just to get me going, you know, just to get me through the front door, I sang Every Time I Think of You, and then I followed that without a break. I always catch my breath, and I'm still standing here, and you're miles away, and I'm wondering why you left. And there's a storm that's raging through my frozen heart tonight. I ain't missing you at all since you've been gone away. I ain't missing you. I sang that in one piece. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I stopped. I was so overwhelmed. I choked. I tried to get into the second verse. And, and on the demo, I've got it somewhere. You can hear me actually choke. You know, it's like it was so emotional. And obviously, I was in denial about going home. I was trying to finish the record, you know. And I got a wife that's like, you know, 10,000 miles away or whatever. And, and, you know, I had to get home somehow. But I, the record was very important. So uh, we stopped. But I knew in that bedroom on Mount Olympus, it was somewhere in L.A. by the freeway. I knew. I knew it was number one. And I knew everything that I ever wanted to do in my life as sort of coalesced into that yeah. song and it was an odd song because i when we got going again i sang across the guitar solo i didn't even know there was a guitar solo so i changed the melody and that became the bridge and uh, at the end in the studio um when we we're doing the vocal i sang i can lie to myself i had no intention of singing it and so the whole thing became about denial masculine refusal to admit that you're in trouble so it had a feminine twist in it, it had a very vulnerable twist in it and yeah. i got that i think from the back of my mind because it was a b-side by the small faces 
Steve Marriott, there's a song called I'm Only Dreaming. And when I was 15, I had a terrific crush on this girl and we broke up and it was like really bad. And I was 15, you know, but and, oh, and, yeah. <laughs> I'm only dreaming. And at the end of the song, Marriott sings, I can lie to myself. And I might've got it from that. Who knows where these things come in and go out? Yeah, It's one big liquid thing. It's like a big oil painting and you're throwing stuff on it. And it wasn't plagiarism. Uh, I wound up working with Steve a couple of years before that, you know, we, we jammed in a club in New York City. He was a really great guy and I was such a huge fan. But um, I hope he's, he's not with us anymore, but I hope he heard yeah. went like, you know. But, uh, and that's the story you're missing. It. Well, it's a, it's a great story. And, uh, you know, this has been uh, nearly an hour filled with great stories. And uh, our, our friend uh, Dominicus Saxon says, I wish I had the time to watch this live because John Waite is awesome. So you see, this is another instance where you don't have to say that you're awesome. We have other people who will say it for you. Uh, but uh, we, it's uh, also been awesome to talk to you. Uh, Thank in, you. Uh, the album and the the upcoming shows i mean there's quite a lot of shows actually coming up so go to john worldwide.com to find those and you know the, the oh song yeah that... and if you want to yeah. buy some artwork we have we're, we're, I'm, I'm doing artwork at the moment oh great yeah that's... and this is the album cover this is the yeah, album yeah. cover for for wooden heart but um there's all sorts of things this dig this i mean don't go away yet. oh no this i'm is, here this, this is uh um Arto, the french surrealist poet this is a picture of Arto. oh wow. and, uh, yeah you know i mean uh, it isn't all sort of uh cartoons and stuff some of it's quite serious but it's uh when i leave the music business again you know yeah. and i wish i'd seem to do every five years you know i think <laughs> i went to art school for four years so i've been painting more right. especially with the lockdown thing you know yeah. But uh, if you want to buy some artwork, you can find it on John. It's, it's that's a, such a terrible plug, but it's quite yeah. nice stuff. You know, if I if I like to sing and it was making art, I would like to own some of it. Really, if it was any good, but I think I've got something going on. But yeah, it. no, it's interesting when you you see you know a lot of musicians have taken up art, and sometimes it's surprise. I know uh, Steve Martin was doing art at one point. You know, he was doing comedy so, band. To oh the, yeah, the comedian. He was doing comedy, banjo, and art. You know, yeah, so he's, it's, uh, he's a great banjo player. Oh yeah, I know. It's uh, it, it's uh, it's almost like comedy got in the way of his banjo playing. Well, you know, <laughs> you should you should um, you should read his autobiography. Oh, I did. Born standing Born up. Standing up. Yeah. Yeah. Just book. about. Uh, yeah. Just like starting and working in the magic shop at Disneyland yeah, and Disneyland, uh, performing yeah. in Osbury Farm, <laughs> and uh, just the idea that uh, you know probably thousands and thousands of people bought magic tricks from steve martin it's uh, yeah. funny to think about but uh yeah so uh but uh for uh for people who want to hear it's not dark yet in the entire collection the wooden heart acoustic anthology all of that and all the upcoming shows just go to john wait worldwide john i really appreciate you being so generous with your time and uh it was just uh, wonderful to get a chance to talk to you I well really listen, I, I, I really appreciate that and thanks for the time and it's and anybody out there that's watching that's uh come to the shows come and say hello we're on facebook you know i mean just you know say hello yeah and the shows are all over you know it's uh you're you've got some uh, shows out this way in southern california a couple of canyon clubs so uh you know it's uh it's good to we're know off for... to florida next week yeah that's for great. the kids with Neil and Patty, so um, 
Yeah. And then we're going to Texas. We're going from Florida to Texas. And uh, uh, before Christmas, we got, I think we got like 23 gigs or something. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, we're, we're back with the Vengeance. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's great. I mean, as somebody who likes going to see live music, it's uh, very encouraging that uh, so many bands are out there. And for everybody who is out there and uh, doing well, you know, I mean, Guns N' Roses just finished a huge stadium and arena tour, and they didn't cancel any dates. So uh, they showed that it can be done, you know, just as long as you take the the right steps. And every once in a while, who knows what comes along the way. But uh, I love that everybody that uh, is out there, they're out there for us. They're out there for themselves because they need to, you know, not be at home anymore. And uh, it's just wonderful. So I appreciate it. And uh, thanks again, John. Wait. God bless you.